0: For most of kind of um, earlier periods of history, people thought about time in terms of necessary tasks and in terms of seasons, right? Not in terms of minutes and seconds, That this is actually a very recent um, notion of time and it's the one we have now um, internalized.
1: The conversations at the Interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe and museum venue, The Interval in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. As you may know, but just to, to touch on, Long Now members have the first chance to buy tickets to these talks. Uh, like tonight, most of our talks sell out. So we appreciate all of you. If you're a member, raise your hand. We've got a lot of members in the house. Thank you, and thank you for those who aren't. Uh, think about becoming a member. Members can also, uh, hi, uh, watch live on, online. Uh, they're watching us right now. So uh, thanks to members who are watching all around the world, live right now. Um, so, uh, without any further ado, we have a wonderful talk for you tonight. Uh, Judy Weissman's book, Pressed for Time, uh, is on sale in the back. Uh, w- and she will be sticking around afterwards to sign it and to hang out and talk, um, We'll have Q and A after her talk, but uh, really, I encourage you to hang out afterwards, uh, whether you're getting a book signed or not. Uh, that conversation that happens after the mic is off uh, can also be uh, really fantastic. So, uh, without any further ado, please join me give a big round of applause for Judy Weissman.
0: Um, I'm going to tell you about this book I've written on speed and acceleration, and when I was looking for inspiration for this book, I'm back to where I am, I actually went to um, the Science Museum in London, and I literally um, happened upon uh, the Long Now um, clock. I took a photo of it, and next to it, um, there was this quote from Stuart Brand, and and I didn't know anything about this clock, and I just thought, wow, this is just the most amazing Um, project, and it expresses exactly my view, which is about the importance of objects and artifacts for how we think about um, time. And then in preparation for giving this talk, Michael gave me um, Stuart Brand's book, The Clock of the Long Now, um, talking about the project, and Stuart actually says exactly this, that the ambition and folly of the clock is to reframe human endeavor, not with a thesis, but with a thing. The clock is an instrument for thinking about time in a different way. Now I'm a sociologist of science and technology and actually what Stuart is expressing is exactly what we do in science and technology studies in that we're very interested in how we make machines and then machines make us. That we think about machines as actually embodying our culture and then this culture. um, In turn, the values and assumptions of that culture shapes up us. And what I want to do today then is very much focus on how our perceptions of time, how we think about time are made with and through the various technologies that we've made, time technologies. Okay, so let me just begin. I've been interested in clocks and time as I said for decades and I was brought up actually on um, Marxist labor history and was very interested in the role of clocks um, for the formation of industrial capitalism, how we have started to think about labor as timed labor and measured it um, with clocks and how um, this kind of image actually sort of summarizes to me 20th century timed labour, if you like, that if you think about um, assembly lines, all of these timetables, they all rely on clock time. They're all about accurate timekeeping. And when I... um Teach my courses at the London School of Economics, and I still try and um, teach social theory there, which is very difficult to do nowadays in the contemporary university but i won 't go into that. Mm-hmm. Um, I teach at the London School of Economics, and the British Museum is an easy uh, walk from there and i 've actually found this old curator um, of the Horology Department who lives w- way down in the interstices of the um, British Museum, and we get and I get and a complete thrill going to the back you know going inside the British Museum, anyway, the guy is down there um, in a room full of clocks and watches, and he puts on his um, gloves for my students and pulls out those amazing kind of drawers they have. Full of thousands and thousands of clocks and watches um, and hands them round. And so these students who initially said, Oh, we've been to the British Museum, we don't want to go back to the British Museum, you know, all (laughs) riveted. They absolutely um, love it. They send a card every year thanking him for, you know, how eye opening um, it has been. And what he, one of the things he makes very clear to them is that actually it was only with, the innovation of the pendulum clock, which we have over here on the left-hand side, that it's only when we have the pendulum, which becomes common in the 18th century, that actually people start thinking about time um, in terms of minutes and seconds, that you get sort of accurate timekeeping. And what the students um, come away with is that they've never really thought about the fact that. You know, for most of kind of um, earlier periods of history, people thought about time in terms of necessary tasks and in terms of seasons, right? Not in terms of minutes and seconds. That this is actually a very recent um, notion of time and it's the one we have now um, internalized, if you like, in the 20th century. Actually, when I was talking about this um, to John Markoff, he reminded me that in the, the classic book, um, The Soul of a New Machine by Tracy Kidder, I don't know how many of you have read that. It was a classic for me when it came out in 1980. And it's this iconic um, book about uh, a group of guys um, Trying, you know, computer scientists trying to kind of um, innovate with this computer, and at the end of the at the end of the story, they're completely wiped out. You know, they've just been working day and night and whatever. And um, one of the guys says at the end, which is kind of much uh, cited, as John reminded me, he says because he's had it, the project over, he says, I'm going to a commune in Vermont and we'll deal with no unit of time shorter than a season. I'll deal with no unit of time shorter than a season, which I thought was fabulous, actually. So if we had to describe our sense of time, the quintessential 20th century sense of time that we have, or modern temporality, I would describe it as linear chronological uh, clock time. And it was against um, that background that I I got very intrigued by all these debates about time speeding up, that we're living in this incredibly um, fast time, that um, there's speed trading, there's speed dating, every aspect of life is speeding up, and that we have more and more digital devices, and yet we seem to have less and less time, we're busier and busier and busier. And at the core of all these arguments, actually, is the notion that somehow it's digitalization, it's digital devices that are driving um, the speed of life, that, that has profoundly kind of altered the tempo and the texture um, of everyday life. And this claim actually is made in um, popular discourse all the time now. I used to once buy all these books. Uh, They come out so often I've given up on buying these books. Um, But they're all bemoaning our current state of busyness and distraction. Um, You know, that because of our phones we can't um, think anymore, we can't... um, Talk anymore, we're all subject to digital addiction, and we can't even sleep because of constant interruptions. And in all of these books, even um, Sherry Turkles, and I'm a great fan of Sherry Turkles' um, earlier work actually, she too um, says that digital devices are killing conversation. You know, alone together is, um, you know, I think portrays that um, in the title. And the solution to these problems is often a digital detox. Let's lock up the machines, go back to nature. I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, The Guardian seems to weekly um, have some journalist who tells us at length about the fact that they managed to get off the media for a whole week, and they're gonna tell us about this experience and how enlightening and amazing um, it was for them, (laughs) you know, uh, as if this is still interesting. And even, even um, Ariana Huffington um, has set up a company called Thrive Global that aims to turn even sleep into a productivity tool. <laughs> and if you sort of read her stuff, one of the products she's selling is a little, um, it's a little bed like this, and you plug all your um, machines into the bed and um, it's a charger, and you put it outside your bedroom so that, you know, and then you close the door and you can have a good night's sleep. Now, I must say, when I first read this, I didn't realise what a big market sleep apps were, actually. I just thought, this is what you doing. But actually, it is a huge market, and um, I know from um, the GDT, um, GTD, Getting Things Done movement, for example, you know that one of the things they advise is that you try and sleep a little less, and you can sleep a little less if you're sleeping really efficiently. So the last <laughs> thing, last thing you want to be is a sleep slacker, right? <laughs> So paradoxically, as I say, the common solution to the busyness, to the hurry, is to buy more and more technologies to try and save time. Um, Whether it's self-trackers, calendars, Alexi, Cira, all these things are are supposed to make our lives more efficient so that we can save time, and particularly multitask. I think there's a lot of sales pitch about if we'll only do 10 things at once, we'll really be efficient. And this is all about kind of time management. And what I try and do in my book, just in a sort of sentence, is really to try and kind of deconstruct that paradox, examine this paradox that we somehow live with such a schizophrenic um, attitude towards our technologies, that we seem to endlessly vacillate between looking to the technologies as a solution to problems and thinking of them as a cause of all of these problems of time pressure. And my basic argument in the book is that this imperative of speed or time, I think, has has got much deeper roots than just, I don't mean just, but much deeper roots than digital technology. But I think it's as much a cultural artifact um, as it is a technological one, and I hope to sort of convince you of that this evening. Now, what I mean when I say that is that I don't think of technologies as neutral, value-free, innocent tools that somehow drive changes in society. I very much think of technologies as inherently social. This is what we do in the sociology of science and technologies. We say that technologies are social, that they're crystallizations of society, that you can read a lot about the society from those technologies. And, of course, this wouldn't be news to an archaeologist, Right? I mean, archaeologists um, find objects, they talk about it as material culture, and they think, and I've got some people who know a lot about this here, and they think, of course, that from these objects, they can tell a lot about the society um, you know, which produced them. And that's um, exactly what we try and do in science and technology studies. Okay, so what are the cultural values that I think are baked into our technologies? What kind of temporal orientation or philosophy of time do these technologies reflect? And of course, I want to start with saying a few words about the hyperproductive work culture um, of Silicon Valley, where after all, much design um, takes place. This is from um, Facebook's famous uh, Little Red Book that you'll all kind of remember, and I think it sums up very well the kind of ethos of a lot of these companies. The quicks shall inherit the earth. It's all about speed. Fast is better than slow. I mean, yes, it's all, I think, valorizing speed and living in the fast lane rather than anything else. And I was... um, Once, when I was in the airport, I actually picked up, as one does in the airport, um, books like How Google Works, How Can You uh, Resist Picking Up, Schmidt and Rosenberg's book, and I opened up this book, and I found that there's a section in this book um, literally called Overworked in a Good Way, Overworked in a Good Way. (laughs) And here they actually say that work-life balance policies are actually insulting to employees, that they want to create a culture where there's always far too many things to do and where you only rest so that you can be even better um, to get back to work. And um, I was then at a, um, a Tim O'Reilly food camp, actually, uh, in the autumn. and. A, And a couple of guys were telling me, and I'm sure you all know about this, but it was news to me, and maybe that's the, you know, what's the news is that it was news to me. They said to me, you know, there's a real thing here in the valley about double speed watching and speed listening. That, um, to audiobooks, to podcasts. They said to me, lots of people will not even go to a real live event because they've conditioned themselves that it feels really slow. So I hope that this hour isn't gonna feel slow to you, that you don't wish you were home on the double speed, you know, um, and they demonstrated this to me and um, showed me that actually the, you know, the, the sound is very good, that you can actually kind of technically do this, but anyway. Um, I said naively, I said, well, why are people um, doing this double speed? And they said to me, as always, as, you know, I always feel like I'm looking a bit naive at this point, they said to me, well, so you can consume more content, get more done faster to save time, fit more in, or avoid wasting time in particular. People get very sensitive, they told me, about wasting their time. And I have to tell you that this problem is a very acute problem um, here. Before I came to CASP for this year, I was up in the, um, way up in the Austrian Alps at a kind of summer school for European, um, from students all over Europe actually. And I met this wonderful philosopher, Owen Flanagan, who works on anger and the causes of anger, and particularly on Cross cultural, he's terrifically good at huge cross cultural studies of where, you know, what are the causes of anger in different cultures. And he came up to me um, after my talk and he said, I've really got to tell you that what I found is that, especially for Americans, he said, somebody wasting my time is the major cause and reason for anger, particularly for Americans. He said, this is the sort of worst thing. And actually, there's quite a lot of academic um, research that confirms this. And there's a, um, a terrific young guy in Berkeley who did a um, who wrote a PhD where he compared what he calls the work narrative of managers and professionals in the US and France and Norway a few years ago. And he found that actually there still was a distinction. I think less and less, I have to say, but there still was quite a distinction. And that he said that the Europeans actually still were rather suspicious of people who were working conspicuously long hours. He said, but to quote, Americans, he said in, his, in you know, the, the interviews he did, and they were very extensive actually, do not associate happiness dividends with leisure as Europeans do. Americans seem to derive satisfaction simply from working long hours. <laughs> These scripts reflect a culture that values overachievement in itself and has a long-standing moral aversion to idleness. That's what really struck me, a moral aversion to idleness. Now, why do I care that optimising time is so highly valued? That this is the quintessential um, experience of modernity? Well, I have to tell you that I'm one of those people in the 80s and I taught courses on chips and the microelectronics. Microelectronic revolution in the '80s, I thought actually that this technology was going to liberate us and free us to work much less and I had always been a great fan of maynard Keynes 's writing in the 1930s, which was that with technology you know with advances in productivity that we would be heading towards three hours work a day you know the 15 hour week and that this is the direction uh, we were kind of going in absolutely and and crucially, and this is crucial, that this free time would be distributed equally, right? That actually a just society would guarantee all citizens a fair share of free time, and free time to do whatever they wanted. We weren't going to stipulate this, we, whatever we wanted. And this is an old Labour poster, I know, but I'm still very fond of it, a 19th century Labour movement slogan. And while I disagree with the eight hours work, it's far too much, right? (laughs) What I really like about it is the eight hours for what we will. And you can see the image there is not about optimizing time, right? It's actually really a, a lovely image, I think, of doing what you want with your time, actually. Really talking, thinking about free time. And that's what I'm, that's sort of my theme this evening. Okay, now as an early feminist, as I, you know, we're now called second-wave feminists. This is I've lived through now being a historical uh, relic of that <laughs> movement. Um, I noticed that women had less free time than men, and I, um, and that all of the labour-saving devices that we were sold then, you know, washing machines and dishwashers and all these things, somehow hadn't eliminated housework, let alone caused the women's movement. I mean, you're probably too young to remember, that it was literally said at the time that these appliances so had eliminated work that all these housewives had nothing left to do, and so they caused the women's movement. I mean, this was seriously, you know, out of boredom, right? So I've done a lot of research on household technology, and then let me tell you that technologies rarely simply save time that what you find is that you know, what technologies do, new technologies, is that they actually change the meanings of tasks, they change standards, you start washing clo- you know, light clothes and dark clothes, you start sending more emails, that all of these technologies, historically we know that there isn't a very simple connection between saving time and introducing new technologies. And, I think at the core of this problem really is the way we think about time. That time is somehow viewed as a resource that can be measured, mastered, according to the engineering logic of efficiency and optimi- optimization, that that's really how we think about time. And we don't actually step back and think that there's about the fact that there's a lot of things we don't want to do faster, actually. We don't want to accelerate everything. And you only have to think for a moment about parenting, right? There's a moral panic about you know iPhones and parenting and, you know, the, nobody's uh, speaking anymore, that phones are destroying conversation. But actually, if you look at the data, and this is what we do as social scientists, we actually look at time use data in great detail to see really what people are doing over long periods of time, you find that mothers and fathers are actually spending more time with children than they ever have before. That we are actually living in a period of intensive Parenthood, and we know from these statistics that mothers and fathers are actually spending more time talking and playing with kids than they did 50 years ago, you know, that it isn't the story of this um, moral panic at all. But if you think about it, this kind of family or caring time encompasses a lot of different activities and a lot of emotions. And it's about talking and listening and emotional nurturing. It's about a lot of tasks that are very fragmented, that are woven into other processes and really have nothing to do with efficiency. And actually, a lot of giving um, care involves slowness, being there, forms of intimacy that can't be automated. And so I think this distinctive kind of temporal consciousness, if you like, which is fluid and open-ended and slow, just does not fit with the rigid clock time of machines. You know, that there's a real disjunction between these different kinds of temporality. a few years ago I was in Barcelona um, speaking at a contemporary arts um, centre, there's a wonderful arts centre called CCCB that has fabulous exhibitions and they were doing an exhibition on cyborgs and human machines and, you know, the things that are on all over the place um, nowadays. And it just happened that this conference coincided with the annual World Mobile Phone Conference that they have every year in Barcelona. Maybe (laughs) some of you go to that. You do. You do go to that. Anyway, it's it's a huge thing in Barcelona. Actually, the people there told me that it's a huge thing for the uh, economy in Barcelona. Whatever, and I was switching between these two conferences, and I have to say that the vibe was so different in these two <laughs> conferences. I just thought I'd tell you about this, right? So, I took an image in the um, from the art centre, and a woman artist had done this, and I really loved it. Actually, in fact, when I. Um, went to look at it in preparation for this talk, I noticed that she'd actually called it optimization of parenting, which I think is kind of weird given my theme. Um, but she wonders about whether this will affect um, her child and then she says, suggesting a robot take over some parental tasks is a provocation that highlights the struggle mothers have. And she says, you know, um, mother, artists, artists that mothers have. Uh, with work-life balance. And I have to say why I really sort of liked it, and it's A, B, and B, a huge engineering company. You know, why I really liked it is because it's an old technology. Actually, Prams were invented over 300 years ago. So it's an old technology. It's a simple technology. It has a universal um, sort of task. And I think it kind of highlights how much we have this fixation always on the new, on the latest, that we don't actually think enough about te- true and tried kind of technologies that still, functions, still function incredibly well. And this was just an image I took from the... Um, Mobile phone conference, you know, the mobile phone conference had every bit of high tech stuff, had these boards everywhere um, flicking away, you know, flashing away at one wherever one went. And as you can see, the whole pitch actually here is speed. It's always uh, kind of speed. Okay, so it's this fixation with the kind of new and speed that has led me um, to carry out a little bit of research uh, while I'm here at the um, Centre for for Behavioural Sciences on electronic calendars. So just in this last um, bit of the talk I just want to very briefly tell you some things I've started to think about um, in terms of calendars. You may think uh, the first question is why why study um, electronic calendars? Why did you choose that of all things? Let me tell you why I chose it. for a start, I'm sure you've all got mobile phones with you and that in those mobile phones actually you have got calendars and that you're carrying them around with you, that your phone actually um, is with you all the time and giving you a sense of time and it's not like, um, it's, it's not like in all of human history you've been walking around with this accurate uh, timepiece uh, with you. But also, I have to say, I arrive here, you know, I, from, from London, I arrive here um, at a moment where artificial intelligence and machine learning and big data are all the rage. You know, these are the ideas that everyone is talking about in terms of what the future's going to look like, what's going to make the future. And I even read in the LA Times that we live in the age of the algorithm. You know, this is defining um, our current period. And then I I go to a conference um, in Washington with high level um, CEOs, it's a conference on the future of work, the end of work and automation, I go to these conferences, I can't tell you how often I go to these conferences where we discuss uh, this topic, and I could say a lot about that topic, but anyway, I sit down at a table with these guys and... um, and I've been you know, giving my talk and they all of them immediately um, get, out their, you know, get out their phones and show me their calendars and they say to me, we've really got to tell you the, the big problem in Silicon Valley is a shortage of time and we think one of the solutions is to automate, to keep automating everything um, including these calendars, that these will help solve the problem. And what I was found particularly interesting was the idea that somehow artificial intelligence was going to turn these calendars into intelligent scheduling assistants. That we're going to do more and more things automatically and we will get to know us so well that, 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 that its algorithms will be able to give us advice on how to use our time wisely. So here we have a mundane, everyday instance where machine learning is being employed to solve the existential problem. In the words of one designer, how best to organise the time of our lives. Now that's some aspiration, right, for this technology, I thought to myself. So how might these electronic calendars be affecting how we think about time, shaping how we think about time, and what might they say about our fixation with artificial intelligence? These are the sort of things I'm now thinking about. Now calendars like PRAMs are a very, very old technology. They go back all of human history, are one of the first meaning-making devices. And I've read that actually the first item ever printed by the Gutenberg Press was a calendar, an almanac, a program of future events and a record of past events, each assigned to a day or year. But what's uniquely modern is the idea of a schedule, a schedule at a microscopic uh, level. and and if you'll excuse me, I know this is my only sort of text but I wanted to put it up here. This is the most famous um, sociologist of time. Um, He's an American, he's written loads of books on the year and the month and you know, all of these things historically. And I think he puts this better um, than anyone else really where he's trying to capture what modern temporality is and talks about schedules as being uniquely modern because they embed this economic utilitarian philosophy of time. He says it reflects as well as promotes a quantitative view of time which involves a definition of time as an entity which is segmentable into various quantities of duration and is countable and is measurable. And he goes on to say that scheduling is actually absolutely key to effective time management because you develop a sense of priorities, and with these priorities, you dispense with any wasteful time, unnecessary time that you schedule properly so that there isn't room for wasted time. For, as the behavioural psychologists uh, write many articles about, the crime of procrastination. This seems to be the worst crime, um, and psychologists devote a lot of energy to teaching us how not to just potter about, which I very much like doing, I have to say. (laughs) So just a point, just a few points um, about these calendars. Michael very nicely uh, made me up a calendar here. We kind of worked up a calendar. It's not to be taken seriously. We just sort of played around with um, what one of these calendars might look like. And I just want to make a, um, a few points about it. Um, The first thing I want to say is that lots of the designers I've spoken to who design these calendars have spoken to me about the fact that the paper calendar that you have on your refrigerator at home in the kitchen is still far superior to this grid-like calendar. And they talk to me about the fact that on a paper calendar, you can stick all sorts of things on there, you can have multiple times, multiple activities, that it's a much more flexible sense of time than this linear quantitative time that you get in a grid. And that this um, grid interface actually fragments time, breaks time up, makes it harder for longer term thinking. As one designer put it to me, I'm too polluted in my mind by the calendaring system, so it's hard for me to imagine a different unit of measurement that is not a half hour or 15 minutes. We definitely think in terms of the tools that we use. And the other conversation I had with them was that in a lot of companies nowadays, the default for meetings is now half an hour, that that's become the standard meeting time. And that this very much frames what you can do with a meeting, how you think about meeting, chunks up things, um, fragments things, and makes meetings very functional. And that a lot of what we talk about is the kind of social glue, uh, the incidental things that keep Um, organisations going are, you know, excluded by this very um, regimented time. Actually one of them said to me, um, which I found very amusing I have to say, he said to me that actually in my company you can hear everybody's phones ping with a notification at 20 minutes past the hour and 10 minutes to the hour. He said, and there's a slight because they're not on exactly the same time, it goes on for a few seconds he says. And thousands of people are moving um, throughout the company at that time. And, you know, I found it so ironic because it so reminds me of the early 20th century uh, rigid time um, in my slide. You know, the kind of timekeeping you think of as early 20th century industrial time rather than the kind of um, time you have in the latest um, corporations. So, of course, people tell me, and I'm sure you'll all know, you all do this. They tell me about how they try and game the system. They try and game their calendars uh, to make space for the contingencies of real life because real life actually doesn't fit into this flat uh, time that real life is full of multiple times, modulated times, differentiated times, and qualitative time, right? And that these calendars can only deal with qualitative time. So in other words, there's lots of very important things uh, like caring that can't actually be rendered or represented in these calendars. On the other hand, and I think this is kind of equally important, and it's the kind of flip side, if you like, all these uh, tracking devices and these calendars make visible lots of things that weren't visible before, like you're pottering around, that there are these new forms of knowledge that are presented uh, to us by these technologies uh, that are being fed into these algorithms. And given this, I really do worry about this project of turning calendars into intelligent personal assistants that will have a relationship with us, rather like a coach. The head of uh, UK, Samson, said last week, talking about his phones, he says, your phone will be your concierge, your slave, your concierge. I thought this was wonderful. Your servant, you know. And the idea here is that time really can be managed more intelligently by machines than it can by us. Um, I I keep wanting to say left to our own devices, I'm trying, you know, um, left to ourselves, right? That we're not only willing, but we positively seem to want to hand over our, our agency and responsibility to machines, that we'll have these machines nudging us to make better decisions, to giving us advice about when to go to the gym, when to do other things, that you know, this—that um, rather than having friends encouraging us to do things, we will now have software encouraging us to do things. As one programmer um, said to me from one of these big um, calendar companies that I won't name but it's the one most used. Um, <laughs> She said to me, AI can learn your behaviours, so you aren't the one having to make decisions. Now you, now you won't forget to buy a present for your kid's birthday party. Calendar is always there, whispering in my ear what to do next. Now, you know, not an image that I am very keen on. Okay, so just to conclude. Um, Don't get me wrong, whenever I give talks on technology, somehow it's very easy, if if one has a kind of critical stand about technology, it's very easy to be seen as anti-technology, being nostalgic for less digitized uh, times. I want to say clearly, that is not me, I love my digital devices, I mean I've spent a lifetime working on science and technology because I think these things are amazing. Um, I wouldn't do that if I just tried to diss them. But what I do want to sort of stress um, at the end is that I think it's a mistake that so much innovation actually glorifies speed, glorifies optimising time and cramming more and more into each passing hour. That we're building technologies for this hyper-busy life without ever stepping back and asking, what do we want to save time for? Why are we in such a rush to do all these things, rather than thinking about what do we want to save time for? And I really think that this requires long-term thinking, which is why I am so, so keen on the clock, I have to say. In sociology, we talk a lot about this concept of presentism or that we live in a culture of immediacy. And what we mean by that is that somehow our time horizons have been shortened, that we do not have a lot of interest or respect for the past or the future, that we live in very sort of contracted time. And that's why why I want to end really uh, with Brand saying um, in a world of hurry, the clock is a patience machine because I think it really embodies a very different ethos um, of thinking about time and I really hope that it can provoke Uh, Fresh thinking about valuing different kinds of time in different ways and also a new thinking about what technologies we could design to support a, a different kind of temporal philosophy, a different temporal order. Thank you.
1: And, and have a little bit of a chat and uh, invite you guys to start taking up questions. Uh, and can uh, would you hand me that second mic, there? Hello. Am I on? Okay, good. Uh, and uh, Joe, do you want to actually help uh, out with uh, with uh, the mic over here? Um, so yeah, we're going to be taking your questions. Thank you for for that. This wonderful talk. I I have to say, um, you know, it, at the beginning of Long Now, Danny Hillis, one of our our three founders who had this initial idea of this big clock, the clock that would tick once a year. Um, before he uh, he had that idea, his career had been making some of the first supercomputers. And so I, I had to say that when I you know first started hearing about your work and we were talking about you speaking, yeah. it, it reminded me, because I think he literally said, and Xander could check me on this, but I think he said, he, he, uh, that Danny had had spent enough time kind of speeding the world up, and he wanted to kind of reflect on that and and maybe help slow it down or at least you know um, uh, balance against that sped up sort of feeling. Um, so you're you're working uh, this this year at CASBIS, uh at at Stanford, um, and you are. Really embedded in this technology industry, I don't know that you've, you know, in that same sort of way have been in this culture. Certainly, there hasn't been, I don't think, a technology-making culture like Silicon Valley's, uh, even at this moment, even yeah. in the history of Silicon yeah. Valley. Um, what is that like going into the, into into the machine, the center of it? Is, it, is it what you expected? Yeah, is, it, is it is it what you expected? Has it been, uh, has it been really? Um, Revelatory? Is it? it What you? Is it? Oh, this is exactly what I thought it would be like. What's it been like?
0: Um, It's it's an extreme version of what I I thought, and I have been. um, You know, I mean, I was so intrigued with those guys talking about um, you know speed watching and you know the whole um, the whole thing, and I mean, you know, perhaps it's kind of important to say that that I'm very aware that it's a very specific culture, and perhaps it's important this. Uh, moment to say that I am, um, you know, what I talk about in the book and what's very important to say is that we're living in a society of huge inequality and we're at one end here and um, certainly a lot of people are kind of very busy and stressed because they're doing multiple jobs and not well-paid jobs, you know, and that the temporality of the Uber drivers and the, and TaskRabbit and the, I mean, you know, one of the things, um, I watch from my flat in Stanford. Actually, is an army of people come in the day to service people. I mean, I've never sort of been in a flat where I watch the dry cleaning van and the blow leaves and the. I mean, actually, my sort of, um, if you like, the sound I'm going to take back with me to London is of the blowers, you know, the leaf blowers, right? Because I mean, this is just the, you know, so the the there's huge amounts of servicing going on, and actually, a colleague of mine. Um, wrote a book about time some years ago where she talks about taxi drivers, I think in Toronto or somewhere, and talks about the fact that actually um, a lot of these taxi drivers are always kind of on call, a bit like the lift drivers, to enable us to live a fast life, right, so that there are classes of people whose lives are devoted to enabling the speed of our lives. So, you know, I'm looking at one end here, which is the sped up life, as opposed to examining the way in which we construct it, which is a, which is on um, the basis of lots of other people's labor, if you like, who are also speeding, but for very different reasons.
1: Right. Well, and, and the, the title of the your talk is the uh, time poverty amidst digital abundance. So is, is time party, is poverty, is that, um, is that mostly a perceptual thing? I mean, is, is that, I don't know how much that is actually a term of art or, or, or just a, a, coinage of yours, but, um, you know, is, is it more, would you say, a trick we're playing on ourselves? Or is it also, as you're just saying, sort of different populations that are having different jobs? Because certainly the person who's working three jobs has a different kind of as time complete, poverty than the person yeah. who just has that calendar. But,
0: I mean, I think here particularly what's very strong is the kind of culture of busyness. I mean, I was lucky enough to um, do a radio interview with William Gibson once on BBC Radio when his most recent book had come out. It was a kind of couple of years ago, you know, the science fiction writer. And he said to me, you know, actually saying you're incredibly busy now is just saying you're incredibly rich, that that's, you know, that that's the kind of equivalent now. And, I mean, I've had people... um, say to me at some of my talks, I mean, you know, a colleague of mine in Cambridge, actually, who I've known for years, said to me, you know, if I go back to my office now and there are no emails, I'll feel like a loser, I'll feel like a failure, you know, that this is so much a measure of kind of our sense of kind of self and who we are and our importance and our status that it's very hard to deconstruct, you know, that it's that culture actually of, you know, and. And in fact, I have to say that when I, you know, first came to America, and I'm like 30 years ago, I have to say, when I was, you know, um, I think my first job was in Edinburgh, I remember sort of various people said to me, you know, when you get to America, all those American academics, they're all going to tell you that they're incredibly busy. You've just got to be prepared for this. You know, that this is part of the, you know, it's just part of the, you know, what's culturally valued, I think, And, and that... I think makes um, leisure such an undervalued um, activity. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and uh, Joe, are you? You've got some great. Um, we'll take. Uh, we'll, we'll take I've got a, yeah a we'll question on that, but we'll take Take a question from the audience. Go ahead.
2: Um, earlier, you uh, showed all the uh, covers of those books that blame the technology for uh, our lack of time. And um, I'm curious, uh, at the end of the day, what you think is sort of the main culprit? Is it sort of some capitalist utilitarian logic or the technology, or both?
0: I mean, I think it's both, right? In that I do think um, work intensification, you know, the notion that you should be at work, very long hours in a lot of these companies, but also um, if you're using some of these online services where you have to be, you know, if you're working through an online Upwork or one of the things, you know, there's lots of ways in which work now is even more demanding of our attention and having to be online. But having said that, it's not that I I, um, think the technologies are not Um, important as well and of course I'm very aware and particularly at this moment in time uh, that technologies are designed to be addictive and that a lot of the best behavioural psychologists are employed precisely to make these technologies as addictive as possible and I'm very um, sympathetic to campaigns like you know Tristan Harris's um, that's kind of raising awareness about these features of the technology themselves. So I think, you know, I think both things, I just sort of argue against this very simple notion that somehow um, this hurriedness came about when we got the iPhone or something, right? So, you know, you go back and read the Tracy Kidder book from 1980. It's absolutely, a, a sp- it could have been written yesterday in terms of the culture of this tech, high-tech organisation and these guys working 24-7 and competing and, you know, so I just think it's, it's good to have a bit of perspective on on speed not being a new phenomenon.
1: And um, something that runs counter that I I recall, Mm. I think from, you mentioned it tonight, but runs counter to that uh, the busier you are and the, the efficiency and benefit of the calendar system that a lot of the executives, kind of the busiest people actually have an assistant. So they're not actually engaging with their calendar at all, I think they've seen that happen as well. Is that, That's what you found, is that well, that's from... Abs-
0: well, absolutely, and everyone dreams. I mean, a friend of mine who works in another huge um, company, you know, just dreams of being promoted to the next level because at the next level you get a human personal assistant, you know, and I mean, I think there's a, you know, it is, it's just putting more and more work on us, yeah. on the, you know. Um, and of course there's nothing like a, yeah, so I mean very senior people of course have got people yeah. uh, to do that. I mean one thing I came across which I thought was very funny was the, was trying to kind of, um, you know, it's partly trying to to train people into thinking that really um, these things automate. And I discovered with one of these systems that you thought it was a digital assistant that was making your appointments, but actually under that were all these people who were actually doing the work, but it was made to look like, look like that. So, you know, I think there's a lot of complicated things going on with yeah. trying to get us used to various forms of kind of automation.
1: Well, there, There's a weird sort of like take on the John Henry and the steam shovel uh, story there or something where like, you know, the, the 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 calendar system is better than nothing but ultimately the human can beat the calendar uh, when, it, when it comes Every down t- to it. Well,
0: and actually some people have said to me that um, Actually, I think it was Mitch Kapoor who said to me, well, the best thing would be to have a personal assistant with a fantastically sophisticated... You know, if you could have those things working together, that would be fantastic, yeah.
1: And and it's interesting with with the time that you have spent now through the evolution of technology as you've been studying it and looking at people interacting with it. Uh, Because that reminds me of earlier times when, like, the very complicated typewriter, the very complicated copier machine, and incredible things could happen with it, but no one was taking the time to read the manual or understood how to work with the interface, and so you did have a probably lower, certainly lower paid person who was your interpreter, your your guide to that technology. Uh, so that, I, I wonder, it seems like that pattern in some ways has happened before. Are there other things that you see where as you get especially now closer to but, this... But no, I was just yeah. thinking,
0: you know, brand has a line um, in the book about technologies, what doesn't work properly yet, something like that, isn't it? That that's how, that's how we think about what technology actually is, you know?
1: Yeah, right. So uh, we don't
0: think of prams, we don't think of all yeah. these technologies of everyday life as even as even technologies.
1: Yeah. Well, one of those lines is that uh, it's... it's, uh, And I'll look at again probably, but... Uh, Anything that's invented before you were born is.
0: Ah, uh, oh, all is, right. Or, or the,
1: after you were born uh, is the technology. A technology uh, uh, is anything that's invented yeah, yeah. after you yeah. were born. Whereas yeah. the other stuff yeah. is like infrastructure. Yeah. I, I
0: mean, guess. one of the earliest things, I mean, I have to say, one of the earliest. Um, things as I did as a feminist working on technology and I've got a book decades ago and you know about these things uh, was precisely to think about um, how we think of what technology is you know and that I used to think technologies were things that were in car factories and someone once said to me what about the telephone or the washing machine or you know that actually our very definition of technology is gendered as well in terms Mm -hmm. of you know what we think technology is and Can I just elaborate just for one moment? I mean, you know, and I I was um, very struck by the fact that kind of in London, it's kind of actually embedded in the museum. So if you happen to go to London, which I'm sure you do, and you you know, on one side of the uh, road is the Science Museum and on literally on Exhibition Street. On the other side of the road is the Victoria and Albert, which has got in it tapestry and all of these other kind of furniture, arts and crafts, right? And I actually um, said to the director of the Science Museum, you know, and when I met him, I said, geez, this is, you know, very interesting. One's on one side, you know, one's on the other sort of thing. And I said, this is kind of a rather gendered thing historically that arts and crafts are are thought of as except not science, and over here we've got the spaceships and all of that. And he smiled and said, yes, and I have to tell you, he said, you know, that in terms of who goes to these museums, that, you know, a lot more women go to the Victoria and Albert than go to the Science Museum and that, uh, that many of the women who go to the Science Museum go as mothers with their kids, you know. So it's like instantiated in the buildings and still, ha- you know, this historical, you know, because it's only a few centuries old, this definition of what te- what, what's technology and what isn't, gets instantiated in buildings and, and then affects kind of the audiences that kind of consume these things.
1: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that... Uh, <laughs> Victoria and Albert has, has been covering the Whole Earth Catalog and, and a few other Long Now related oh, things. Oh, well, that's so, right, we, because that's so, right. Yeah.
0: That exhibition yeah. was there recently. That's right, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah,
1: so, yeah. so hopefully we're... Uh, helping to balance some of those things out, uh, and we're going to get another question from the audience. But there's a comment from the stream actually that uh, a, a uh-huh. dry comment that we should from the we stream. Turn, we, for, yeah, okay. uh, yeah. So uh, live stream folks, right. uh, send your questions in too, please. Uh, no, just just saying that uh, we could uh, we could turn over all our data to Cambridge Analytica and they can take care of our scheduling for us. We'll be well covered, Absolutely. right? Was there? Uh, yeah.
0: Well, I was alluding to that indirectly. Yeah.
1: Yes. Joe. I, I was wondering, um, it seems like a lot of the technology for calendars has come from the Silicon Valley ethos of, of quantifying and making everything legible. Um, if you were to design a calendar um, with the focus on quality time, what would it look like and are there any companies that you've, you've seen actually it?
0: Actually somebody did tell me about um, doing a design exercise of trying to include a lot of family activities. Um, was kind of trying to do that. And you've told me the story about how on on one early one that, that weekends were smaller or something than yeah. the weekdays.
1: Yeah, I think you see that on some analog calendars as well, that it's like lots of space to fill in your events during the week, and then the weekends are small. And there's only like a couple things you can fit in, which is, I mean, certainly doesn't fit your balanced eight-hour uh, portions.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not an easy thing to answer. I have to say that the designers all say to me that they've really thought long and hard about the grid interface, you know, and that at the moment they can't think of how to get away from that, you know, that that seems to be the best representation of time that they can come up with and they know that it's, that it's a lack of imagination, you know. But it's not like they, you know, I, I ask everyone this. It's not like they say, I've never thought about it. They all say, yeah, we've thought about this a lot. We've tried different things and we kind of still come back to this kind of visualisation. I mean, I think it's partly to do with the visualisation that goes back to factors and, you know, long historical representation um, that is hard to kind of get away from. But, you know, I wish I had an answer to that question.
1: Um, and... Um what do you see? And again, you know, most of us, I think, are are here in the Bay Area. And so we're yeah. around a lot of this particular uh, culture um, coming from London, another busy place. But as you're as you're throughout your <coughs> research on other things that you're seeing, are you seeing differences in this feeling of busyness, this this the speed of life with. um Different uh, demographic groups with different people in different uh, areas. Is what? What can you tell us about sort of how different populations uh, 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 feel that? Because I think there's a tendency, you know, in the midst of the Bay Area to generalize, you know, uh, our experience to to other places. Is is are there are there stories there that uh, would be of interest to tell?
0: I mean, I think that's such a difficult question, actually. I mean, I worked for a while. how long ago, it was just when um, Lehman Brothers collapsed actually, so that will time it uh, perfectly, Um, I was working in London Business School for a while and there was a lot of talk then about um, young people at that time um, valuing time uh, in different kinds of ways and actually choosing to work in companies that had better uh, flexible policies and work-life policies and all of those things. And you hear much less about that now, interestingly. And I think that is probably because we're in a time where there's a lot of unemployment and a lot of insecurity and um, that you, you need to be in better times where you can kind of actively be making choices about kind of different ways to live and the model here seems to be but I mean you all know more, much more about this than me but it's like you, you just work intensively and burn out and you hope that you know by the time you've burned out you can set up a different kind of life which seems to me not a good model actually
1: <laughs> um, Let's. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your, your book Pressure Time so this is a, a, a few years back tell us a little bit more about what's um, you know, what, what's in here? Is this, is it largely what the types of things you're talking about here? What's, what, are, uh, what are you exploring in here? Oh,
0: well, there's heaps of things in there. I mean, I was p- partly um, trying to locate the discussion historically, and so I was very interested when I went back um, and read about the kind of, you know, the telegraph and the railway in Greenwich Mean Time. Yeah. And, you know, I was just very interested in how we got to this point of a standardised time that we live by. But also, you know, when you reread authors of that period, you know, Proust or whoever, they all talk about, you know, getting on a train and speed, you know, and the speed and that they just thought, gosh, they wouldn't be able to see anything out the window because the speed was so unprecedented. And so I just think it's very interesting historically that we've had technological changes. And I think perhaps as dramatic as we're living through now, which is again an argument I'd sort of like to make, that completely changed people's perceptions of time. You know, the telegraph was going all around the world and that, you know, rather than, I mean, I remember sort of reading uh, this book once because I'm sort of originally Australian, right, about how, you know, people could have died somewhere and the letter on the boat would take, you know, would take weeks before it got to Australia and they'd be reading about, you know, whatever had happened back in Britain sort of thing and how that changed with the telegraph and that that was such a dramatic sort of change in terms of globalization and you know, um, the compression of space and time. And that I think it's very important to think historically about how dramatic those changes were compared to the changes we've got today. So that's one thing. I mean, I could go on forever, Michael, but right. I don't want to if there's, you know.
1: <laughs> so right now you're focused on uh, calendar software. Are there, are there questions like even from 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 audience or user, are, what's what's your what's your sort of process as you're doing this work? Are you you're talking to the designers? Are you talking to to users? What types of things are you still um, sort of figuring out or still trying to? Understand? I,
0: I've mainly been talking to designers, but I am um, interested generally in the kind of algorithmic thinking, if you like, how. Um, more and more big data is being fed into various technologies and the kind of effects that will have on us. And I mean, if I can just sort of give an example, I mean, again, this isn't my work, but a colleague of mine in Oxford, on self-tracking technologies, that one of the things, um, Gina Neff very much talks about is how once you have this data, you then start measuring yourself against the data. You know, so everyone does this lunatic 10,000 steps a day, and she says in this book, she has no idea where this came from, she has no idea if this is kind of legitimate, but you know, that once these, you know, that somehow these um, tracking devices produce notions of normal, notions of standard one should live up to and that it's very easy then to, to kind of think that you're a failure, that you're not managing to do the steps, that you're spending a lot of time pottering round, that you're not you know, optimizing and doing all these things. I mean, even on the hill where I work, people are very concerned with their productivity. You know, who's writing a book and how quickly, and you know, all of that. And it's, quite, and, and it's very hard, actually, to have a sort of sense of self kind of separate from that.
1: There's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. another question over here. There we go. So,
2: just curious, yeah. um, we talked about people our age, you know, to 20 up to 60, 65, 70, whatever it is,
0: in that range, Yep.
2: Um, what do you see for
0: the future for children? I see kids walking
2: around with their cell phones, you know, 5, 10, 10 years old, and you see that they're already so immersed in this scheduling and competition and, you know, it's just, where, where do you see that going? And do you ever see it going full circle, well, finally people start realizing you need quiet
1: time, you need um, leisure time, Do
0: you see that? Well if I can answer that as an angle I have to say I was very excited by the huge demonstrations that have have just occurred and you know my hope is that suddenly we have got young people politicised, you know that this will be the moment like the Vietnam War was for me I hate to say it was the moment where you know. Um, I became political and that political consciousness um, lasted a lifetime and so I think events like that are actually much more um, kind of dramatic in terms of people's political formation and how they're going to live than their current use of the phone you know, I guess
1: well, it, it's, it's interesting though. I wonder. We could I end
0: on an optimistic note, Michael
1: <laughs> uh, Okay, then, then, I may, then I may suppress that comment uh, <laughs> There's, there's a certain article about a BuzzFeed uh, about, about how a child uses BuzzFeed that really sounds and it, it's, um, sorry, uses BuzzFeed, uses Snapchat. It's Snapchat, on BuzzFeed. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, and uh, it really seems like they give themselves a bunch of tasks to do at the start of the day. That they've got to kind of send a note to all of their friends and modify an image for each of them and do, do all these things. And in a way, they are, so social media becomes its own uh, the, the your casual social media becomes its own workload uh, that you yeah. have to keep up. Um, yeah. Are you are you is your is your work at all crossing over with um, with social media uh, things as well, or just the calendar stuff? Yeah, no, no. yeah. Um, and um, t- uh, tell us. So so you're at the London School.
0: Uh, of economics and political uh, science.
1: Yes. So, 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 put that in context for us, because I think I don't think everyone is is as familiar with the. We're talking a little bit about the institution of it uh, before, and you you mentioned also that social theory was. Uh, oh, well, it's, I'm, right I'm, now, at so.
0: a, I'm at a social science university, so the London School of Economics and Political Science, although it's always shortened, which we hate, to the London School of Economics or the LSE, um, is a social science university, so we don't have sort of computing at a medical school and things. We just have premier economics, history, political science, um, those things. And we're very proud of the fact that the institution was actually um, originally formed by Fabian socialists. This was the origins of the institute, and it's always been a kind of very radical institution. Um, And so we are always the ones who get it in the neck from the press. I mean, if there's any left-wing activity going on, it is always the London School of Economics, and I'm proud of
1: that. (laughs) (laughs) We we get that in the Bay Area a bit too, happily. One more question from the audience. There we go. Uh, Go ahead. Hi. Oh, there you are.
2: Yeah, we're sorry. Um, So first off, Thanks for the radical feminism. That's awesome. (laughs) I appreciated the call out and the acknowledgement. So thank you for doing that. Um, I was interested in your talk. I felt like you touched a little bit on this sort of notion of um, like better time usage being about progress and um, kind of like advancing society. And one way that I see this reflected when I travel or when I live in other countries, et cetera is that countries that have kind of a slower sense of time um, often are denigrated or even denigrate themselves. Like they'll be like, we have to speed up our sense of time. We yeah. have to be more on schedule yeah. if we want to match the progress of the first world. Um, and I mean, in the way that I was taught to think about this, it's more sort of like, okay, they have a different sense of time and like, especially like in anthropology circles, it'll be like, okay, Mexico or Africa observes polychronic time or feels time in a different way. and like. Switzerland in the US is monochronic, and it's just different more than like better or worse. But I think there's this very keen idea that like monochronic, like up to the minute, like USA, like aggressively productive time is better for getting things done. And that means that um, those societies will do better and be happier and healthier. And I guess I'm just curious about how you would respond to that. Um, Both the like, both the charge that societies that are more monochronic are better, and the fact that that idea sort of influences these people's people's notions of themselves and um, people's self-esteem and place in the world.
0: I mean, can I just say that I was just yesterday, actually, at the AAA, what is it? The Association of Artificial Intelligence um, Spring Conference in um, Stanford, And there, as happens um, so often actually when I go to things, Uh, you know, Europe is presented as very far behind, you know, and the story that I get all the time is, you know, poor old Europe, you know, all that regulation, you know, they're so far behind what's happening here in kind of Silicon Valley. And to which I say actually, you know, democracy and deliberation take a lot of time and that actually the mechanisms that there are in Europe now for having more citizen engagement with the kind of science and technology we've got, the directions in which it can go, does take time, actually. And I think we have to kind of make the argument about whether we're just going to get into this fast and break things or whether we think it's important to have much broader participation in the kind of, in our futures. I mean, actually, again, you know, within science and technology studies, we talk about kind of socio-technical imaginaries, we talk about, how, do, how does a culture think about the future and articulate what the future is? And that you know, Silicon Valley at the moment is incredibly powerful in having taken over this discussion. Right? That we don't have um, discussions about political utopias like we used to we just have discussions about you know artificial intelligence and what's going to be you know the self driving car or you know this is what the future's going to be and we need to recapture this conversation i think away from this kind of tech dominated future and think about our social values and politics first and the technology second and on that note i think i am going to end my All dear right. yes <laughs> indeed
1: indeed big <laughs> round of applause for you. Uh, and I, I have a, a long now challenge coin as a small thank Whoa, you for thank your you. wonderful talk. Thank you. Um, take, turn off your calendars, stick around, <laughs> take your time. Uh, the, the patient machine is working. Um, We've got uh, copies of Judy's book in the back, whether you have a chance to get one and have her sign it or you just want to come up and ask her a few more questions, uh, she's going to be hanging out and we hope you will too. Thanks again for coming out to the Interval tonight. Thank you. Have a good night. If you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more Long-Term Thinking Lectures, hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org slash podcast or wherever you like to listen.